Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Um, Henry Ford's assembly line was unveiled on December 1st, 1913. Arguably one of the most innovative contributions to manufacturing in the history of modern industry. Prior to that day in December of 1913, it took 12 hours to assemble a Model T. Once the assembly line was in operation, the entire car could be put together in one hour and 33 minutes. Not 35 minutes, not 30 minutes, one hour and 33 minutes. With mass production, the automobile became more accessible to more Americans. I think everyone got here today in an automobile. That just says something about it. Nobody came on a horse or uh, I don't, didn't see any bicycles or anything. So I think everybody got here in an automobile. When the Model T was introduced, it sold for $825. That is about $25,000 in today's dollars adjusted for inflation. I don't know how much a Model T would cost you today. Probably more than that if it ran. Um, However, by 1924, the price for a Model T had dropped as low as $260. So, uh, that year in 1924, the 10 millionth Model T rolled off the assembly line there at the Ford factory in Highland Park, Michigan. Ford had broken down the assembly of a Model T into 84 distinct steps along the assembly line, each one critical in the successful assembly of the car. I don't know if you've seen any of our modern auto manufacturing plants, but I'm sure that our assembly lines today are a far cry from what Ford had put together there in Michigan. But literally, we can see that that Ford's innovations helped pave the way, no pun intended, for our modern American economy. We've been dealing with the book of Acts, and, and Acts has been a study about the spread of the gospel through the concentric circles represented in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, along the way, there are lessons to be learned. We look at how quickly this church has expanded in the first century, and it was a direct result of the witness of that church, the apostolic witness of the church. The men who were leading that church had been with Jesus. They had heard from Jesus. They had seen Jesus. They had experienced Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and so their word carried significant weight. You had men bearing witness who actually were witnesses. Now, we no longer have that apostolic witness in the church today. That, that has since uh, gone on. But the principles that we see at work in the book of Acts are very much principles that should inform us today. So it's important for us not only to study Acts in the historical sense, because it's a historical book, it's a historical record, it, it chronicles the development of the church and gives us in some degree the framework on which the rest of the New Testament is built. But the triumphs and tragedies of this early church still should serve as guidance for us today. When Henry Ford finally understood how to best mobilize his resources, I think it's safe to say he changed the world. I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like today if we did not have the innovations that Ford came up, came up with. I don't believe this is too much to say. Sometimes we can say things that are hyperbolic. I don't think this is hyperbole to say this at all. When the church truly understands how to mobilize her resources, I think the church can change the world as well. I think the church can change the absolute world. 
So let's watch our friends in the book of Acts as they continue to lay the groundwork for their disciple-making, world-changing endeavor. If you've got your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 4 today, beginning in verse 32. I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words together, beginning in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, with, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. God, I thank you for the witness of this church that stands as a, an example for us today of how our lives and our churches should function. Lord, may we learn from this example and grow in the knowledge of, of, of your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. We remember that Luke is not just a regular, just a chronicler of, of information. Luke was a professional. Luke was a, a physician. And so Luke's writing is often more detailed than some of the other gospel writers because he was a physician. I wonder if he had bad handwriting. I don't know. Um, but occasionally Luke will take a step away from the action of the story, and he'll, he'll sort of take the temperature of the church. We know about taking temperatures, right? We've had our temperature checked more in the last year and a half than probably in our entire lives, and so Luke does just that. He, he takes the temperature of the church, does a pulse check, and, and like a good physician, he stops to kind of give an interim status report. Maybe you've been to the doctor for some sort of long-term course of treatment, and, and you go to the doctor for a checkup, and he says, you know what, right now everything looks good. Everything looks fine. Let's, let's keep status quo. Let's not do anything different. Let's, let's, let's just check in and see how things are going. And it's almost like here Luke is making some notes in the chart. Right? He's a doctor. The, here's the action. Here's what's been taking place. And Luke takes a moment here to kind of make some notes in the chart to, to understand what the church is, is actually like right now. Because I think it's safe to say that as we have gone through these first four chapters, there's been a lot of action. Right? I mean, that may be an understatement. The disciples have been commissioned by Jesus. They've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know that happens every day, right? I mean, a lot of big events are happening here. The first sermon of the, of the church era had been preached by, by Peter, and then you have a follow-up sermon that he preaches later after the healing of, of the, the crippled man. There's thousands of new Christians roaming around. The church has experienced its first miraculous healing. There's been opposition and threats. We've seen a praying church greeted by an earth-shaking God. That's a lot, right? I mean, we look at that and say, man, that, that's a, that, is a, that is an action-packed story if there ever was one. You've got to think Peter, James, and John are just sitting there thinking, man, what, you know, how do we catch our breath? You know, what in the world? And so Luke here kind of does that for us. He takes a breath, tells us how things are going. That's what these few verses are, checking in on, on the symptoms. What are the symptoms that, of this church? And according to Luke, the patient is checking out pretty well. I think that there's an important word for us here this morning as we look at these verses. And I think the word is this, a full church calendar. 
And let's be honest, a full church sanctuary are not always the best indicators of how things are really going. When I was in seminary, I I served a little church that was over in the shadow of the Mercedes-Benz plant in Tuscaloosa. Uh, we had several church members who worked at the plant. I'm sure that Silverdale and some of those churches up on the north side of Chattanooga probably had a lot of Volkswagen employees who, who worked there. I mean, it's just the, the nature of, of, of that industry. And, and during our time there, Mercedes made a pretty significant change to the design of the SUV that they built there. And one of the changes, once it was implemented, the, the lines all started back up again. Everything had been changed over, and they were producing cars just like they always had. However, the, the quality of the newer model was compromised as the manufacturing bugs were kind of worked out. One of the things we learned is don't ever, if you buy a new car, don't ever buy a new car the year model that, it's, that they make a major change because there's going to be all kinds of things that are wrong that they have to figure out. And so this, 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 this took place there even in Mercedes. I had a church member, his only job during that season was to inventory the thousands of Mercedes-Benz SUVs that were parked in their parking lot that had some sort of flaw that had to be repaired before they could be sold. And so if you bought a Mercedes that year, it likely may have sat in the parking lot for months with some defect that had to be repaired there at the factory. As we look at Luke's status report here, we see the church is busy. We know the church is growing, but we need to understand that the church is more than just cogs in an assembly process. It's not just the, are we, are we generating the cars? Are the cars right? Are the cars healthy? Are the cars in good shape? Are the, are the cars good product when they come off the assembly line? Luke here is saying, it's busy. There's a lot going on. Is the church healthy? We're making, we're, we're making converts, but are we making disciples? So what are the characteristics of that healthy church that leads to healthy converts, that leads to healthy disciples? What are the characteristics of that church? Here the doctor helps us to understand some of those characteristics. And the first thing that we see described for us here is that this church that was making healthy converts, healthy disciples, one of the things this church understood is they understood unity. They understood unity. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They understood unity. Now, sometimes we have a, a, pretty, sh- a pretty shallow view of unity. We see unity as, as, well, we're getting along and we're not arguing, right? As long as, as, long as nobody raised their voice in the business meeting, that was church unity, right? And sadly, I don't think that gets to the heart of biblical church unity. Luke actually says that the church shared one heart. Again, this, this points to something deeper than just an external sense of agreement. We tend to reduce the concept of unity to how those, those measurable things look, like how did the vote go? Did everyone approve the budget? Did we pass the budget? Did, did this vote get, was it unanimous? But I think we need to understand that unity in the body of Christ is more than just agreeing about those measurable things. Unity in the body of Christ, as described for us here by Dr. Luke, is fundamental unity. There is a unity of heart, and it is this kind of inner unity that actually has external consequences. When there is that sort of inner unity, there is agreement in decisions that need to be made. There is trust in those making decisions. When there is that inner unity, there's no real division on issues that are, that are of, of great significance. You know, we, we agree on those things that matter most. 
Unity of heart and soul doesn't mean they saw everything eye to eye, though, right? Sometimes that's where we, where we make the mistake. If you recall what this church looked like, you've you got to go back a couple of chapters to remember the makeups of this church. It's made up of people of all sorts of different ethnicities, all sorts of different cultures. Uh, all those people were saved at Pentecost were from all over the Mediterranean. And so it's made up of people who look different, who had different accents, who liked different food, who liked different music. They had all kinds of diverse experiences and diverse preferences. And by a miracle of God, he throws all these people in the same room together and says, now you guys get along. It's a, it's a hotbed for things to go haywire. But here early in this church, we don't see that taking place. There's no way this group of people saw eye to eye on everything. There's no way. Where are we going to eat after church today? <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation? Can you imagine the, 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 the liveliness of, of, that, uh, of that discussion? There's no way they saw eye to eye on everything. Did you like that song? Not really. Did you like that song? Oh, I loved it. It sounded like we, what we sang in my, in my home country. Well, I didn't like it because it doesn't sound like what we sang in our home country. And there's no way they agreed on everything. But they had foundational, fundamental unity. I love how Kent Hughes states it. He says, It's wrong to suppose, as sadly some do, that when believers dwell in unity that they will carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same styles, educate their children the same way, have the same likes and dislikes, that they will become Christian clones. The fact is, the insistence, listen, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying mindsets a church can have because it instills a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with lethal force. One of the wonders of Christ is that he honors our individuality while bringing us into unity. Well, that's the true miracle of the church. We all have different thoughts about different things. I mean, we, some, look at kids. We've got kids in Christian school, kids who homeschool, kids in public school, kids, you know, all over the place. And because families approach that differently, families have different opinions and attitudes about how best to pursue that. Does that mean that, uh, that we're going to have a, our homeschool church meets over here, our public school church meets over here, our Christian school church meets over here, and we're going to be, all meet in separate areas because we can't agree on, on that issue? Is that what, I mean, we can't function that way. We got the, the person who likes the King James over here and the person who likes the ESV over here and the person who likes the NIV over here and they all say that their word is the only word. We can't function that way. And when a church wants to impose those kinds of, those kinds of extra biblical mandates on people, it shoves people away from the body. They don't want to be any part of it. They don't go anywhere near it because of that disunity that is birthed out of that judgmental mindset. You see, those surface-level issues didn't matter because there was unity in Christ. I, I hope you've experienced this at some level in your life. God has given me the opportunity to meet believers from all over the world. And, and every time I've met a brother or sister from, from some foreign land, there was a sense of, of shared foundational unity that we've had. I've had people from Uganda sleep in my house. And I thought, what a, what a strange thing to have people who grew up in Uganda living in my, staying in my home. Uh, the, the difference in backgrounds. I've never known anything but, but suburban American living. I've never had a time where, where I wasn't sure where, where my, my meal in the morning was going to come from. 
I've never had a time where, where I wasn't sure where I was going to be able to lay my head. I've never had a time where I worried about the, the, the water rising from the river that I'm sleeping next to or, or you know, is the roof over my head going to, you know, going to give in and, and leak. I've never had that experience. Yet I had people in my home who, who very realistically had that experience growing up. And I think, how can we have anything in common? But by God's grace, we share unity in Christ that's deeper than our backgrounds, deeper than the language that we speak, deeper than the experiences that we had. And sitting there talking to these people who are from Africa, living and staying in my home, I think, man, how good is God that he can take people where if we just passed each other on the street, we didn't have anything in common. Didn't even really even speak the same language. But by God's grace and by the unity that we share that's foundational in our hearts, God gave us a sense of unity that was, that was greater than, than I could have a non-believer in my home who grew up in suburban white America, and I had more in common with my Ugandan brothers and sisters than I would have with that non-believer who's sitting in my living room because there's something deeper that connects those of us who are in Christ. I've really come to appreciate the diversity that's represented in the kingdom of God. I meet monthly with a group of pastors who become dear friends. They're not Baptist, but they're evangelical. They love the Word of God. There's no doubt that Jesus is king. We don't agree on everything. In fact, we have lively discussions about the things that we don't agree on. I tell them I'm the only baptizer, and so I tell them that I'm happy to wash that off for them. You know, I'm happy to dunk them anytime they're ready. Uh, and so we have great conversations about that. We give each other a hard time about that. We don't agree on some of those things. But there's unity in our spirit. And even if we would have a hard time embracing all the nuances of each other's denominational affiliation, there's unity that's there in our spirit because of who Christ is and what he's done. Here's the thing. You can have a busy calendar. You can have a full church sanctuary. But if you don't have unity of heart and soul, then your assembly line may be running, but it's not running well. And it's producing those cars at the end that have to be parked because there's lots of things wrong that have to be fixed. Secondly, we see in this early church that there is an awareness of God's grace that leads to an overflow of grace to others. Look at, again, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You know, you think about grace you have to think about something that, that God grants. We all are beneficiaries of, of the grace of God. God grants that to us. And uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, It's by grace that you are saved. And so grace, properly thought of, is something that God gives to us. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the, the throne of, of God is the throne of, of grace. And so grace is the chief characteristics of, of the throne that God, that God is, is seated upon. However, when we become aware of the grace of God, there have to be consequences of that awareness. An awareness of God's grace in our lives has to lead to an overflow of grace in other people's lives. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 30 or Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see when you become aware of that grace that's shown to us, the forgiveness we receive in Christ, a product of that grace in our lives should be that it's difficult for us to not share that grace with others. When we think about the, the, the work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be a community where grace is freely given and grace is received, where forgiveness is extended, where, where, where people look at that community of Christians and say, what is it about those people? 
they they show genuine genuine care and forgiveness for one another when they don't agree on things there's there's forgiveness that's extended it's because we're aware of the grace of god we're tremendous beneficiaries of the grace of god one of my favorite stories of this is in luke's gospel again dr luke tells us this story it's found in luke chapter 7 verse 36 one of the pharisees asked jesus to eat with him and so he went to the pharisee's house and reclined at his table and behold a a woman of the city that's a code word for a woman of ill repute there she was a sinner and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the pharisee's house she brought an alabaster flask of ointment a woman who was a prostitute came into the religious leader's house to meet with Jesus. Can you imagine the scandal today? The scandal of, of our day if, if the pastor was at somebody's house and a prostitute came in and started washing the pastor's feet. She brings an alabaster flask of ointment and standing there behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And of course the Pharisees... They invited him, they saw this, and, and said to themselves in a judgmental way, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the Pharisee said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven consider just how much in your life god has wiped off the record Consider just how much in, in, I think, in my life, and I think of the things, that, the debt that God has negated, the debt that God has said paid in full, the debt that I could in no way ever, ever, ever possibly repay. And at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he satisfied the debt. And he pours that grace out on my life how can that grace not help but overflow in my life to others? How can a church filled with people who share that same testimony, we all come with different stories, different backgrounds, different journeys, but our testimony is the same. We're all people who are debtors to that cross and to the grace that was poured out upon us. The church here in Acts shows us that there's a keen awareness of God's grace and it leads to an overflow of God's grace to others. You know, sadly, we all know of church folks that we have to tiptoe around. They're perpetually perturbed. Dealing with them almost feels like you're riding a pogo stick through a minefield, right? I had a pastor friend who described them as folks that act like they got weaned on a dill pickle. 
We look at that and we say, how does that work? And I'll be quite honest, I don't know. I don't know. Because if we're aware of the grace that we've received, then the only thing that should come out of us is, is grace. Such a demeanor of that, of that type is inconsistent with someone who understands the breadth and width and depth of God's grace. If you're somebody that people have to tiptoe around, ask yourself if you're aware of God's grace in your life. Is God's grace overflowing from you? And here's the thing, as a church, we can have a full calendar and we can have a full sanctuary. But if there's no abundance of grace, then we know that that machine's just not working right. It may be making product, but that product's not worth selling. Thirdly, the early church had a clear understanding of its power source. Look at verse 33 again. The, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it means with mega power, right? So if you're a video game, you got the power up here, right? You know, I mean, I mean this, is, this is mega power. They have got mega power. And, but what's interesting is that that word that's used here in power is the same root word that gives us the word dynamite. You think of dynamite, you think of explosion, you think of something that can't be contained, something that, that, that once that fuse is set, you just stand back because there's no stopping what's about to happen. That is the power with which the disciples are, are working here. That is the power for which the apostles are, are bearing witness. You see, this church understood a few things because they just heard Jesus say it. They understood that all authority had been given to Jesus, and now they were sent out in that same authority. They understood that the Holy Spirit came in power and filled them in power, enabled them to carry on in spite of that opposition. Attempts to silence their witness, <laughs> that only gave them impetus to bear witness even louder. They, were, they knew where the power came from. But they knew it wasn't their power. It wasn't like Peter suddenly, you know, it wasn't like he got exposed to gamma radiation. He was suddenly the preacher hulk. I mean, it's not like he suddenly became just keenly aware. He didn't get super soldier serum and turned into a, a Captain America of preachers. That's not what happened here. Peter was a fisherman. He still was a fisherman. He probably still liked to go wet a hook every once in a while, if I had to guess. He wasn't anything special other than loved by God. Paul Paul apparently had a speech impediment. There was nothing super-powered about the Apostle Paul. He was, a, he was smart. He was intellectual. He made really great philosophical arguments, but he wasn't just super-strong, and he wasn't just this compelling, charismatic personality. I had a friend on uh, a preacher group on Facebook that I'm, I'm a part of, and he was, um, he was talking about his preaching. He said that he preaches from a manuscript. That means that he writes out word for word what he's, what he's saying, and, and he's, he's tied to it and reads it as, he, as he's preaching. And, and he was saying that, um, that the church just didn't like his preaching because he was preaching from a manuscript. He was asking for, asking for some assistance. And a lot of people came to his aid, gave him some practical advice on how to do a better job at that. But one person made a point and said, um, one of the greatest sermons ever preached in the English language, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached by Jonathan Edwards, led to the conversion of many, one of the sparks of the Great Awakening, was actually read from a manuscript. Paul was not a particularly compelling person, but he understood power. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul said this, so he had a vision from God and Pretty impressive vision, but verse 7 in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, So to keep me from being conceited, 
because of the suppressing greatness of the revelations, he says, a thorn was given to me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, that it should leave me. But what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes we want some sort of superpower to, to go about the call of God upon our lives, but really all God's looking for are not the strong or not the, or not the, the, the super smart. All God's look, really looking for are those who are available. Uh, I would draw our attention back to the young lady that was before us earlier, a second grader who took it upon herself to make sure that she invited as many of her classmates as she could to come to church on Wednesday night. You know, we mistakenly assume that we have to have some things to accomplish a lot for the kingdom, that we have to have a big budget, that we have to have big buildings, that we have to have this or that. And I'm not suggesting that we don't use those things and those things aren't helpful, that we, that we, I'm not suggesting we don't need a budget. But the first thing that we need is an awareness of where we are empowered for our mission, and that is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have full calendars and we can have full sanctuaries, but if we're not plugged into the power source, then our machine's not working as it should, and it's going to produce a product that's not as quality as it needs to be. Finally, the early church cared for one another. Look at verse 34. There's not a needy person among them. They had all the peats and snow cones they could handle. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I don't want to miss this. It seems that this pandemic has certainly taken a toll on this dynamic in our day and time. We're living in a day where we're, we're actually, instead of being called to care for one another, we're being conditioned to see one another as threats, right? You're in a store, you're at the, on the grocery aisle, and someone down the aisle from you, <coughs> what do you do? Check that mask a little tighter, right? Or dig it out, right? We're actually being conditioned. Again, I'm not suggesting that it's not wise to take precautions. I'm not suggesting that at all. Please hear me in that. But this prolonged conditioning process that we're experiencing is helping us to see each other as threats. Uh, you don't need to come to my house to minister to me. Uh, no, you don't have to come to the hospital. You don't have to do that. Don't sit next to one another, don't, sit, don't get too close, don't come to my house. And that's not the church. I'm not suggesting that we don't use wisdom and discretion in how we care for one another during the spread of an airborne virus. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting that we be mindful that it does not develop into a pattern for when it is no longer relevant. You see, what we do today can turn into habits that are really hard to break tomorrow. And there will come a day where this stuff isn't necessary anymore, where the delta, omega, whatever Greek letter they assign to whatever virus is floating around, that it's no longer relevant. 
But let's make sure that in our habits today that we don't let the mask become a habit that keeps us from people tomorrow. Let's make sure of that. This church in Acts understands how to care for each other. They understand how to care for each other. Nobody had needs. God moved in such a radical way that the people who had an abundance gave so that those who had little were taken care of. Now, some have looked at this and said, ah, first century church was communist. Stalin was the pastor of the church, right? Communism is when the government comes in and takes everything that's yours in order to share it with themselves and others. That's not what this is. What this is is, is is care. And care is when you take what is yours and share it with others. There's a difference. The church cared and cared radically. And they're, they're caring radically within the body. Now, of course, we're called to love our neighbor. We're called, called to do good for our neighbor. Paul emphasizes this later on in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, so then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Let us care for everybody, right? But then he conditions it. He says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so there is, there is certainly care and love for, and concern for neighbor, but there is specifically care and concern and love within the household of faith, within the church, and that's not just a job for the pastor. It's not just a job for the deacon. It's a job for everybody. It's everybody's job. You know, if you think about it, the apostles, they probably weren't able to help as much in the level of care that was taking place here because they'd been homeless with Jesus for three years. Probably didn't have a lot of property and, and, and stuff to liquidate. So that wasn't their particular ministry at that time, but there were others who were able to fill in the gap. The apostles may not have had a lot of material resources, but the church as a whole did. And as a result, nobody had needs. But we should understand that that goes deeper than just physical material needs. Because physical needs are a gateway to greater needs. You know, sometimes it's easier for us to make the sacrifice for the material needs. It's just money. It's just stuff. It's just a possession. But when we have those emotional needs and spiritual needs that we need help with... The sacrifices that we have to make to help people meet those needs and care for those folks are things like time and comfort. Ever been in that place where you see the guy on the side of the road that says, you know, he's hungry, and, and you think, man, your heart gets tugged on just a little bit for whatever reason, and you think, well, I'm not going to give him money because, you know, he's going to go do something, buy booze with it or something. That's what we always say. What if you said, you know what, I'll meet you at the gas station and I'll buy you some, some food and some water? Well, I don't want to do that because that takes time and it takes comfort to be able to care in those situations. But the church is doing that. The church is meeting those needs. There's not a, a needy person among them. How do we know? Well, just consider this guy who's mentioned at the end. We're introduced to a guy named Barnabas, someone who was able to participate in the financial sacrifices that were needed to help meet the needs of the body. But he's not remembered for his financial gift. We'll get some people later on who remembered for their financial gift. They don't fare too well. Hey, that's not what Barnabas is remembered for. We don't ever hear about this again in Barnabas' story. Instead, what we hear from Barnabas over and over again is his, is his nickname. His nickname is that he is the son of encouragement. And I don't think it's because he's a fat guy nicknamed Tiny, right? It's not, it's not that he's just the grumpy guy. I think he's actually an encourager, right? So he's the, he's the son of encouragement, and he's remembered that throughout his whole ministry. He's somebody who is an encourager. He, he, he reaches out and helps to meet people's needs, not just here physically, but, but also emotionally and spiritually. He's an encourager. Don't you wish we had more men like Barnabas in our churches today 
Somebody that just looks and says, you know, you need a word of encouragement and is able to extend that. You know, the church today, we can build big buildings. We can occupy ourselves with a full calendar. But if it's a machine, we have to ask ourselves the question, how does the machine really function? And what is your role in the process? In this machine we call the church, even the smallest cog has huge significance in the finished product. Go take your engine in your car, for example. Go outside, pop the hood, look at how the belts are strung around the front of your car, and, and just take the smallest pulley out. It's the smallest one. You don't need it. Just take the tiniest pulley out and see what happens when you try to crank the car. It's not going to work. But it's the small one. You just took out the smallest one, the most insignificant little pulley. It didn't help. It had a job to do. And in this machine called the church, it's got a job to do. Every single pulley, every single cog, every single part has a job to do. And so we need to make sure we work to oil that machine. So may we dwell in unity of heart and soul. May our lives overflow in grace as an awareness of God's grace upon our lives. May we remember our power source. And may we all abound in care for one another. All this because our hearts are inclined to one and only Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer said it this way. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another. They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. As part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every single one of us must bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring our lives under his rule and under his lordship. And when we do that, there's no stopping the church where all of its members surrender to Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wisdom of your word, and I thank you for the example of this church. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to you in obedience to you, that we would understand our gifts and our ministry to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's, it's more than just our, our presence. It's more than just events and a full calendar, that our ministry in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has, has far-reaching effects on who we are. And that all begins by submission to Christ. And so I pray that each one of us would evaluate our own lives to determine um, just how submitted we are to your rule and your reign. Just how aware we are of your grace in our lives. Just how aware we are of your power in our lives. That we would be mindful of our care for one another and that we would work to strive together in unity even when those surface level issues sometimes we don't always see eye to eye and agree on. But may our hearts extend to one another in care. Lord, I pray your blessings upon this, um, uh, the rest of this day as we seek to, uh, to honor you and, uh, with our fellowship. And I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.